So as we start, I'm going to ask you to do a little experiment with me. If you could close your eyes, I know that's a dangerous thing for the preacher to say at the start of the sermon, because sometimes that happens automatically before the end. We're going to start. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I want you to think of heaven. Allow yourself to think of whatever comes to mind when you think of heaven. Okay. Open your eyes. You can still think of heaven if you want to, but I'm going to start the sermon. We're going to we're going to take a look at a uh, picture of heaven that uh, God has laid out for us in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a crazy book, right? We've admitted that. It's okay to say. I'm saying in front of you, I think it's okay because uh, I think it's true. Re- Revelation is just a crazy book, right? There's all kinds of images and uh, weird stuff. It's hard to even know how to, how to take it. But when we get to the end of Revelation, to chapters 21 and 22, where we're going to land today, uh, starts to come in pretty good focus. Um, not to say that it is is perfectly clear everything that's going on, but we have a pretty good idea. This is talking about something really, really good. And the message of Revelation as a whole, if we allow the, that this whole very... Uh, very, you know, strange book with its weird images and and uh, and somewhat troubling uh, pictures at times. If we allow the whole thing to kind of wash over us, this is a message to God's people during tough times to let God's people know it's going to be okay. That's what the message of Revelation is. This is this is God's message to us. As God's people, during uncertain times, it's going to be okay. God's going to work it out in the end. And particularly the church that was experiencing these difficulties in the first century, uh, I mean, they were going through some really, really hard times, many of them. There were uncertain political realities where the the government was out to get them in ways that put them in prison and sometimes ended their lives. There were always, of course, the realities that people experience throughout human history, uh, economic uncertainties. Would they have enough to eat? Would they be able to work, provide for their families? That was certainly a case. And of course, health issues have always been a problem for for people. um, whether at any given moment somebody's feeling well or not, <laughs> that could change in a moment. And then very often we're not feeling well and uh, death and disease is a constant reality. And then on top of those kind of uh, global and uh, recurrent themes of uncertainty in the times and death and disease, there's, there's the... Uh, there's the economic, uh, excuse me, the interpersonal struggles that we sometimes face with just the people 
around us. Um, we all know what hard times are. And this book was meant to give us hope in hard times. And the culmination of this book that gives us hope in hard times that, that for God's people, it's going to be okay, this word of comfort. Here, the capstone of that book is Revelation 21 and 22. And this tells us how God is going to bring it all together. So let me read uh, to start the first four verses of Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people, God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So I think from those words, we get the idea that God's going to make everything okay someday for his people. It's the idea that there's a uh, blessed hope for God's people that regardless of what happens here, someday we're going to be in a setting where God takes all those problems and all those troubles and all that pain and all that despair and wipes it away if we are willing to enter into that space with him that is the coming kingdom of God. And it's described here as a new heaven and new earth. I started by asking you to think about heaven, whatever comes to mind. And, and I, I don't know what particularly came to your mind, but I suspect it was good. And, and the, um, the vision of heaven that we have as God's people is meant to sustain us through difficult times. So I want you to kind of, in your own mind, think of what you imagined heaven to be and compare it to the themes here in Revelation uh, 21 and 22. And we're going we're gonna, to, uh, in just a moment here, focus primarily on three themes. But before we do, I want to, I want to make some notes here about... Um, how these three themes come about. Notice that this is not just talking about heaven, right? Do we notice that? It's not just talking about heaven, is it? It's talking about two heavens and two earths, right? Because in verse 1 it says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And first earth had passed away. Huh. How about that? Okay? So the idea is that there's a, there is a heaven right now and there's an earth. We're in it. And uh, 
The heaven right now, that's a good place, right? Because that's what happens when, when those in the Lord that die, their, their spirit goes to that place, and that's good. So those that have died in the Lord before us are there, and if we die before the Lord comes back, we get to go there. That's all good, right? And there's this earth, which is good and sometimes not so good, right? This is a fallen earth, but it is a good earth because God created it, right? And so we look at a sunrise and it's beautiful and we say, that's beautiful. That's a reflection of God's good creation. That's what God made the earth to be. But then there's, there's death and disease and destruction and uh, natural disasters and all, all that. Well, that's not good. Well, that's a result of the earth being fallen and sin has entered the world. And that takes us back to the book of Genesis and the fall and all the rest. And this picture here in Revelation 21.1 is taking us back to that good creation and saying someday, even though the earth has fallen, now someday that's going to be restored. And there's going to be a new heaven that comes down to a new earth and the two will be one. That's how God designed the earth to be. But the fall corrupted it. And we know that Revelation 21.1 is hearkening back to that good creation because there's this phrase, and there was no longer any sea. So if we think back to Genesis 1, there was the, the whole earth was just the sea, right? And the sea throughout Scripture is this idea of chaos. Uh, it's water you can't drink. It's storms that wash up, and, and uh, the sea can be an inhospitable place that's the picture here it's the sea that had to be pushed back when God was rescuing the Israelites from bondage it was the waters that were pushed back in the Jordan River when the Israelites entered the promised land the sea is something that has to be held back but there's no more sea the idea is back there in Genesis chapter 1 where God created the heavens and the earth, and then he separated the land from the sea and the, 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 the waters above from the uh, waters below. There's all this imagery of, of the pushing back the destructive forces of chaos to carve out good space. Well, ultimately, that is the hope that God wants his people to focus on. He is going to not just take God's people to heaven someday when they die, and that's it for eternity. He's going to bring heaven to earth. And that is the hope that he wants us to focus down. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride. And then verse 4, he's going to wipe away the tears. No more death. No more mourning, crying, pain, the old order. Things have passed away. So what does this new heaven in this new earth look like? Well, there's three themes that we're going to, to look at, okay? Three themes that give us a picture of why this hope of God's coming kingdom to earth and restoring creation to its original design, why it is so good. First theme is this idea of the city of God, which is the bride of Christ. So Revelation 21, verse 9, 
It says, one of the seven angels, but the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came, said to me, come, I'll show you the the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. There's two images here, but they come together because clearly they're meant to reference the same thing. The angel says to John, I'm going to show you the bride, and then he shows John the city. That's what's being talked about here, the the new Jerusalem, the place where God's people dwell, where uh, God uh, intersects uh, earth. The idea of Jerusalem in the Bible is it's the place where God intersects heaven and earth and where God's presence dwells. Well, this image now uh, becomes the image of the new heaven and new earth. The new Jerusalem is where God comes down and resides in heaven. It isn't the intersection of heaven and earth. It is heaven come to earth and God is ruling over all. But because it's a city, a city is more than just a throne, right? A city is more than just um, this uh, place where God dwells. It's where God's people dwells. The city is an idea of community. And so it's the same thing with the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is a name for the church. The idea is that uh, new heaven and new earth is the community of God living together in his presence. As I said earlier, this picture, new heaven and the new earth, it harkens back to the original creation and the original design. And if we go back there and just take a few samplings of some of the um, themes of creation, when God created heaven and earth and then he placed... um, the pinnacle of his creation, human beings, in that space that he made. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, we see these words. God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living Creature that moves on the ground. The idea of creation, the original design, was that God created a community that started with just one couple, but a couple was, it wasn't one individual, it was the first couple, Adam and Eve, but what were they to do? They were to, to populate the earth and fill it so that there was a community on earth, because that's how God designed creation to be. He designed it to be people together in his presence, serving and loving one another. When we jump ahead to the New Testament and we uh, look at what Jesus came to do when he established his church and and, um, sent his disciples out to all the corners of the earth What's he doing? It's a a, um, restatement of that original mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to go into all the world, preach the gospel. He's he's saying spread the community of God throughout all creation. And in uh, 
we see it picked up in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It says, For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, the bride of Christ, the picture of uh, marriage and, and the community that's formed of uh, interpersonal dynamics where each take care of the other and each are more concerned about the other than they are themselves. And in that community of uh, mutual submission and service, the needs of the others are taken care of by each other so that people don't have to selfishly grab for their own. Their partner is always looking out for their best interest. That picture of community is the profound mystery about Christ and the church. The bride of Christ is meant to be like that. We know this, right? We know this, but we also know it's hard to do this. But when we think of heaven, if we are to have a biblical picture, if we are to allow the themes of scripture that God gives us here in this book that's meant to be our encouragement through difficult times. And let's face it, whether we're in difficult times or not, there's difficult times around the corner. That's just how it is in this life. This picture of heaven meant to sustain us in difficult times. The element that is first and foremost is that we are a community designed to take care of one another. When we think of the hard times that we might face, the political uncertainties, the economic uncertainties, the uh, death and disease, those are all a reality. But the interpersonal difficulties that we have, those are a reality, right? But um, if we are to allow the hope of heaven to intersect our heart and provide us hope, we should always in those interpersonal difficulties be thinking, what can I do to reflect the ethics of heaven and serve this person as opposed to expecting them to serve me? That's not going to take care of all the problems in our interpersonal dynamics. However, that should be the, um, the, the impetus of God's people at all times is to reflect the ethics of heaven as we interact with one another. And in fact, in Revelation 21, 27, some of the last words of this book of encouragement meant for us. Um, well, excuse me, in, uh, toward, the, toward the end of uh, chapter 21, it says, nothing impure will enter, it is, that, that is this new Jerusalem, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Someday there'll be a community where there is no, um, there is no uh, uh, unfair, uh, unjust systems that tear us apart, but only a community before God that is mutually submissive to one another and service, serving one another so that everybody has their needs met as they meet one another. Theme one is the city of God, the bride of Christ. Let's, let's look at another theme. 
That's the theme of the water of life. The last two themes that we're going to look at have to do with sustenance that gives us uh, <coughs> the power to live out that community that is given to us as a picture of the, the new Jerusalem. So in Revelation 22, first two verses, or at least first uh, part of the first two verses says this, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. This first image of sustenance we have is of the water of life. So this again harkens back to the creation story. Of course, we know that water is essential, right? And, and we need to, to be hydrated. And if we don't get hydrated, we can't last very long without water. And some of us might not like drinking water so much, but we drink stuff that's got water in it and we, we stay hydrated. Um, water is life, and so it is in this picture of heaven, but so it was in the, in the beginning. And that's why the sea is an element of chaos, because the sea is filled with water that doesn't sustain our life. We can't drink it. So the, the river um, of life is so important. In Genesis 2, 10, we have a river watering the garden that flowed from Eden. It's, it's uh, there, the, the source of life that water provides is essential and unmistakable in our life, but also a powerful image in Scripture of that which provides the life-giving energy that we need in order to sustain the life that God wants us to have. In John chapter 4, this image is picked up as, is, as it is throughout Scripture. But in John chapter 4, verse 13, as Jesus was talking to what we call the woman at the well, if you remember that picture, Jesus says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, the water from the well. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is speaking about something more than just the wet stuff that we can drink when we're thirsty, that can quench our thirst. He's talking about a spiritual source of life here that um, is something that can sustain us to eternal life. Now, what, now, notice in verse 13 that Jesus says, the water I give, if, if you, you drink the water I give, you'll never be thirsty again. If it stopped right there, that would mean that you could just have a sip once and never have to have a sip again. But that's not what he says, is it? Because it goes on to say, uh, indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the idea is that 
the, the sip that you take from Jesus then becomes a spring within you that allows you to always take a sip whenever you're thirsty. This is a metaphor, right? We're understanding. This is something to, to, to take something we know and evoke a spiritual truth that uh, might be hard to otherwise understand. So without taking this too far, uh, I want us to, to think about this for just a minute. There's a, there's a, a, a river in heaven that is hearkening back to the original creation and it's going to uh, combine heaven and earth so that the, the two become one and the original design of creation will be fulfilled someday and last forever. And this, this sustenance that is provided by this water gives life. And Jesus talked about that when he was on earth and he said that he is the one that is uh, the source of this uh, soul-sustaining and life-giving water. And yes, it's available in the new heaven and new earth, but in some sense it's available right now through Jesus. Let's think about water for a second. I don't know about you, but... I usually think water's pretty boring to drink. Not a big fan, I'll be honest with you. Probably don't drink enough of it. However, I do know this, that if I've worked really hard outside, or inside for that matter, worked up a sweat, if I've worked hard, Water is all I crave for. Water is most satisfying after labor. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, maybe you just like water to begin with. Good for you. Uh, but when we've worked hard, we really, really crave water. And I think that might, in some sense, be a reflection of this um, picture that Jesus is giving to us because he's saying to this woman at the well that if she in some way and anyone else connects with him, they will have this life-giving water in them. So what does it mean to connect with Jesus. Does it mean just one time saying a prayer, asking Jesus into our heart, or asking Jesus to forgive our sins, or asking Jesus to save us? All of those things are good to do, but it is, does it just mean we do that once and we're good? And we're going to heaven when we die? Well, the message of Scripture is was never meant to be boiled down to that. Just Ask Jesus into your heart so you can go with your, to heaven when you die. And regardless of what you do now, it doesn't matter because you've got that covered. You asked him into your heart, and you're going to be okay for eternity. Now, I'm not saying that um, if you ask Jesus to come into your life and you mean it that, uh, and then walk away from him that you're going to lose your salvation. I'm not talking about that at all. What I'm talking about here is this. There is this sense that connecting with Jesus is meant to be a continual connection with him, 
that causes this continual source of nourishment to come up so that it is uh, always an engagement in a relationship that requires effort so that we desire to keep drinking because that water is what we need because we're walking with Jesus and we're carrying our cross with him. And in order to do that, we need sustenance from him. If you ever feel that a relationship with Jesus is getting stale, just like maybe water tastes boring sometimes, we should focus on the attention. Well, what kind of labor am I involved in with Jesus? Because if I'm walking with Jesus and I'm working with Jesus and I'm working up a spiritual sweat with Jesus side by side together, then water is something that I crave and am satisfied when I'm working and walking with him. That is the message of Revelation, in fact, because at the end of chapter 22 and verse 17, after talking about the city of God, the, the bride of Christ, after talking about the, the water of life, it comes up again. And verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Who are they saying that to? They're saying that to Jesus. They're saying to Jesus, bring it. Bring heaven to earth. Come, we want this now. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Who's that? That's us. Bring it, Jesus, come. Bring heaven to earth. But then it says this, let the one who is thirsty come. Who was that? that that's us now because heaven and earth hasn't gotten here yet. That's us now. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. That river's water is available now. It is that hope of when we can uh, drink it in eternity one day. It's spiritual sustenance to help us walk with Jesus. The water of life is an image of heaven. And we're going to finish up with one more image really quickly because it's very similar to the one that we just talked about. Added to the water of life is the tree of life. In fact, these two images are so closely uh, related that uh, they, they are one on top of another literally in this vision. In Revelation. Revelation 22, verse 2, the second half of verse 2. So on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So, what's going on with the tree? It's on both sides, and I don't know how it works. It arches over the river, whatever. Okay, it's an image, but it's connected to the water of life. The tree of life is there in this picture of the new heaven and a new earth combined into one. And again, it harkens back to Genesis. This is really important. In Genesis 2 verse 9 and then later 
in the next chapter in 322, we see this tree of life mentioned. And when we think of the Garden of Eden, we think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, uh, that's kind of central to the story, right? But there's also this tree of life, which is separate, okay? And notice what it says in Genesis 2, 9, the Lord made, Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, we know what happened. They were told that they weren't supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't told anything about the tree of life. In fact, I think they were encouraged to eat the tree of life because that is what sustained their body and kept it uh, uh, able to live forever. But just like the water of life, it wasn't one sip. It was the continual diet of this fruit that would sustain them. How do I know that? Because if we jump down to chapter 3, verse 22, after they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and after they had uh, corrupted that image of God in them, it says, the Lord God said, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so they were banished from the garden. The idea here is this tree of life, that a steady diet of this tree of life is able to sustain one's body for eternity. And so without going too far in these images, the connection between the, the water of life and the tree of life, it seems to me because the water uh, of life is available now in some sense through Jesus, that that is talking about some kind of uh, 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 sustenance for the soul and the tree of life has more the idea of sustenance for the body so that together these two will sustain God's people throughout all eternity. But it isn't a sip of water and a bite of the fruit. It's a steady diet, day after day, of the spiritual and physical nourishment. So Adam and Eve were banished from partaking of the, the tree of life because God didn't want them to live in that state forever, that state of brokenness and fallenness. That's why I sent Jesus so that Jesus could restore what Adam and Eve had broken. Tree of life isn't available to God's people yet, but someday it will be. And someday the death and destruction, the deterioration of the body will be taken care of. It will be healed from the fruit of the tree of life. There's something about the the leaves, too. I don't even know how that were. Tea? I don't know. Maybe that, that'd be something to drink, I guess. The water of life and uh, maybe uh, some kind of tea with the, the tree of life. What, whatever it is, the, the picture is in heaven. The body and soul will be restored forever. But even though the tree of life, 
the fruit of the tree of life is not available now. And our bodies do experience death, destruction, and decay. There is a sense in which the tree of life is available to us. In Proverbs 13, verse 12, the tree of life pops up again. This proverb says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. So what's it saying here? It's saying if we always have our hopes dashed, that just crushes our heart, soul, and body, right? We even feel that in our very bones, right? That, that just wears us out. However, we look forward to something and we uh, can experience the fulfillment of that hope. That sustains us. That's like a tree of life. That, that actually sustains our health and we feel better. Well, what is the ultimate hope that God has laid out for his people? It's the hope that one day heaven and earth will be one and God will sustain his people forever in his presence through the water of life and the tree of life, which really is his good gift of his presence among us. So when things are difficult, when we're feeling worn out, when the troubles of life seem overwhelming and all the craziness just seems like these monstrous forces that are out to get us because, let's face it, in many ways they are. That's the picture of Revelation. Let's remember this, that God has a hope for his people. And he ends his uh, uh, message of hope in the book of Revelation with uh, this picture of what one day it will be God's people serving one another before God forever in a restored creation. We can drink in that hope now by serving one another before Jesus. And the words of Revelation 2 verse 7 can come to fulfillment with in our lives right now, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's where we're going, God's people. We get to bring that here now by loving one another and serving one another. May this sustain us to serve our Lord until kingdom come. Let's pray. So God, we gratefully sit in your presence and drink in the knowledge that you desire to restore us and restore your creation. And so we ask that you'd cause us to be people who live in that hope and seek to bring that about in our daily lives by drawing closer to you and serving one another. Now as we go to your table, we get to eat and drink of the spiritual sustenance that is Jesus himself who made it all possible through his sacrifice. Cause us to receive the sustenance from you that we need to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.